OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. All right, everybody, welcome. Today, we are with Neil Sahota, and I'm actually super excited because, Neil, I have watched a lot of your content. Uh, I'm a big fan. I'm not sure if you get to hear that all the time, but I do enjoy the conversations that you've carried and all the great things you do. But just for the purpose of their audience, and I guess I'm going so fast here, I should say welcome and thank you for joining us at OPN's Ask an Angel. It's uh, brilliant to have you, and uh, thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Really excited, Jeffrey. Thanks for the opportunity. For sure. So the best way for us to start is if you can give us a little bit of an intro background on yourself, where you kind of came from, um, from your IBM days and everything else, all the good things that you've done, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. Okay, that, the last one's going to be tough. <laughs> um, so I actually started off as an entrepreneur my final year as an undergrad. I went up starting a company with a couple of buddies. We made every mistake you could possibly make. You live in a time where you had the great access to mentors, accelerators, incubators, and we learned a lot. And I went up parlaying that to going to become a management consultant. Figured if I can't do it for myself, at least I can figure out how to do it for other people. And so going down that path, I worked for global Fortune 500 companies on business strategy, new product development, opening new markets. And that kind of reinvigorated my desire, you know, to help startups. And so I went up going back in the startup world, but as an investor and advisor. So I'm actually part of five different VC funds. I'm obviously an angel investor, but, you know, I'm solving problems, helping people. I wound up developing some intellectual property on something we call artificial intelligence now. And that got me a call from IBM R&D asking my work. And next thing I knew, I was helping out to build Watson and the Jeopardy Challenge and wound up building the ecosystem for AI, where 70% of the companies are actually startups. They don't come with the, you know, what are we really trying to fix here because nothing's broken attitude. They come with the more disruptive you know, ideas. Five years ago, I was asked to, you know, give a keynote to the United Nations, spoke from world leaders, and I wound up helping them start up the AI for Good initiative. Uh, which is where we're using AI on emerging technology for the sustainable development goals. And what's pulled up in that recently is last year we started the UN's Innovation Factory. So it's a social entrepreneurship initiative where um, social impact entrepreneurs get a very global stage to showcase their work, their ideas, help find teams. We have affiliations with, you know, VCs and all that stuff, basically give them a helping hand because while they're trying to solve local problems, they often have global solutions. I'm dumbfounded. I don't even know what to say next. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Uh, that's awesome. Well, and where are you located right now currently yourself? I know you work uh, with the university, Irvine, all that great stuff in California. Are you residing in California as well? I do. I live in Orange County, California. I used to say that the whole world is my office, but um, only virtually these days. Well, fair enough. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, so I kind of want to go back to the IBM Watson side, because you mentioned that 70% of the companies that are using Watson uh, are startup companies. Um, and I find that kind of phenomenal, a, a big phenomenon, because 
uh, it needs data. And there's companies that have been around hundreds of years that are still collecting data and they would be perfect to go on IBM Watson. And we've worked with Watson many times. We own a software company. We've been doing that type of research and data for a long time. Uh, but I find that fascinating that IBM has taken such a route to drive startups into their data. What is the holdback for big business in providing you guys with this data? Because that's what's going to benefit all these startups in creating amazing products. For the, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a protecting the king of the hill attitude for them, right? They, they have a successful business. They don't want to cannibalize it. They don't want to take too much capital risk. But, you know, it's complacency. I hate to say that way. I get that a lot of people are used to thinking of computers as automation. Now we have AI that does more than automation, but it's kind of like Kodak, right? Back in the day, you know, if you, people who actually remember Kodak, they were the kings of film and they were for over a hundred years. What killed them was digital camera, right? In the 1996, when cameras, digital cameras came out, they're like, ah, oh, it's a fad. It'll never replace film. Quality's not great. Of course, so what happened. The irony is that Kodak invented a digital camera. Steve Sapsoon invented it in 1976. Kodak's like, we don't want to cannibalize our business, right? We're making good money. Why do we fix something that's not broken? That's the same challenge we have today. All these big companies, like I got something, I'm making good money. Why should I go do something new? Why should I change the way we're doing things, period? And it's like, well, you know, adapt or die, Jeffrey. Totally. It's, uh, it, it kind of falls back on the uh, Nortel, was very similar to this, yeah. Blackberry. Blackberry is a king of this, but they've, uh, and same with Kodak, they've made this big shift, but they still protect their data. Um, like even if you look at Blackberry, they now run a lot of the automation for car software, uh, for automobiles, massive, still doing a billion dollars in revenue, but they're looked at as being small. Kodak, billion dollars in revenue, but you still think that they don't exist, but they're, they're doing pretty good. I'd be all right with a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, <laughs> they're profitable. Uh, you know, they, so I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to get coach them to, to kind of get through with all that. But the bigger piece here is that there's a huge opportunity for startups. There is a lot of data and Watson really carries that. Um, and obviously you being on the side of the AI, is there something of uh, optimism or is there something that you can really say to get these startups to really dive into what IBM's offering here? I would tell everyone that, you know, Watson is not designed just for big companies. It's actually designed with the little startup companies in mind, the people that have an idea and trying to figure out what to do. You know, we've gone to great lengths to build dictionaries and our data sources for people to use. But at the end of the day, Watson, AI, all technology is a tool to figure out the best application for the tool. That's why we did this. It's like, let, let the experts bring in their domain knowledge then you got to think differently, right? If you don't disrupt yourself, someone will disrupt you. Well, we found that the big companies didn't want to disrupt themselves, so the startups did. So we enabled them, we empowered them to actually do that. Oh, I think it's brilliant. Now, with the, the way it's structured, how does this really benefit the startup? So if, if I'm out talking about this, which is, hey, you guys got to connect to the IBM side of things, what, what's the best way to sell them through on this? Because I think it's huge. And anything that you can get data from, I know it's not free data, but anything that you can really collectively tie your algorithms in and just get smarter, faster, what's that sell feature? What do you guys do to kind of move people through that quick pipeline? 
it's the partnerships that we've built. It's the access to data that people would never normally be able to get to. I mean, if you're going to do something like in med tech or health tech, it's like, a, you don't want an AI to be able to read, you know, MRIs. You need lots of data for that, right? The Watson ecosystem was built with, you know, the Cleveland Clinic as a partner and the Mayo Clinic as a partner. So there's resources and channels to actually get the data you're looking for. That one of the big smartness things we actually did was we set up a content repository to actually enable that kind of matchmaking. I think you just sold me right there on something <laughs> that I don't think I heard in any of your talks because you're bang on is that if you're looking to fix something of a problem in this industry like data in MRI reading, we've got the partners that we've already pulled the data from that's going to benefit you. And all the things that I've done in the IBM side of things, they never brought that up as being the sell feature. It wasn't, we've already went and scrubbed and brought all this data in. It was just, we have the data. But knowing that it came from that clinic or that the data was actually that powerful, I think that that would actually make a bigger difference for me to say, hey, what am I doing? I should pay the money, get this data because it's going to solve my problem quicker and make my business move faster. You're actually touching upon a really important point, Jeffrey, because Truth and technology, truth and trust in technology is key. But as technologists or engineers, we just, we already, we kind of know it and we don't think about the, the average person or lay person. And so it never pops into our head to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, that data came from the Mayo Clinic, right? Not realizing, like, oh my God, that creates so much reassurance. goosebumps <laughs> knowing that's where you got because we have startups that could use it, but knowing that it came from there, that makes a bigger difference, right? It's like you said, trust. But it also makes me realize like, man, I'm trying to get this data and I've been knocking on the Mayo Clinic's door. They're not answering. Well, why am I doing that when IBM has it and I can just pay to get it? So I, I think that that segmentation makes a big difference in the world of startups, especially when you're moving quicker. And I know we built a product. This is a few years back, maybe, I don't know, eight years ago. We called it Simplify. And I was actually in my old email yesterday and I was going through and I was like, oh, my God, that was from 2014. We designed this whole system, CRM system that would tie into LinkedIn. They were all for it. And then they shut us out and they integrated someone that did the exact same thing we did. We were pissed. Oh. But regardless, we couldn't do, it, do anything. I don't know why, maybe just too young at the time of looking at it. But we tied into so many domain systems because the data that we needed in order to operate was LinkedIn. It was... Um, not the Better Business Bureau, but some other application that just hosts hundreds of thousands of content, but they were going to charge us like $100,000 a month as a startup just to be able to pull and scrub this data. And we're like, we're a startup. How are we going to get $100,000 a month to scrub this data together? So it, at the end of the day, there's bigger, better options. And knowing where that data comes from is going to solve a lot of your problems quicker. A hundred percent, right? I think we all know data is the new oil and People are hoarding it. They want to raise money if they can't use it. But the great thing about corporate ventures now is they'd rather bet on the entrepreneur. Let them take the risk, give them a little money, see if they develop something, give them some of the resources. They build a market, great. You know, maybe you buy them for a premium. If they don't, the company is like it's, it was lower risk than you trying to do it yourself. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies that are moving quicker in the system, right? Like they're getting bought within the first year and a half. And they really don't have that much to offer. But what they do have is that they tested the water, they got the data, they got the access, built the APIs, and that's good enough. So you know what? Buy them for $20 million and build that up to a $100 million business in three years, no problem, because you can add in your own resources and, and make it bigger, right? 100%.
That's how, yeah. that's how big companies do crazy things now. They trust the entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> it's opened the door, which wasn't the case five, 10 years ago, right? Oh my God, no. <laughs> so in this journey that you've gone on from building the AI system and, and working within Watson, and you've kind of progressed obviously a lot from there. Um, and now you're kind of globally talking about everything you've done. Um, you did make some predictions on how the AI system was going to work and operate inside of Watson in healthcare. Has any of that changed from when you first talked about it to where we are today? This is like five, almost five years later. Have you seen a big shift in saying, you know what, man, did Watson ever drive this forward? Or are you still kind of scraping your head going, man, why are people not moving quicker in this space? It's, it's, a, it's a mix of both. Um, we've seen really great progress in terms of, you know, diagnosis and personalized treatment plans and precision medicine. We've seen better things in terms of like bedside manner and just qual overall quality of care, but we've got more things around research, not so much. Um, I think it was about four or five years ago that we had a case, uh, there was a woman in Japan, she fell ill, she saw a doctor for like 20 years. Uh, he couldn't figure out what was wrong with her, started seeing specialists, you know, they tried all the tests. But long story short, seven months later, they had no idea what was wrong with her. And one of the doctors finally said, we should try Watson, right? And so Watson came in, looked at all the great work the doctors did, looked at her genomic structure, family history, all that kind of stuff, asked a couple of questions and said she has two rare forms of leukemia. That's the diagnosis. The doctors didn't believe it, but they tested for it. She was positive for both. But now that they knew they were, they could put her on a proper treatment plan, she started making a recovery. But again, it never really spiked up from there. And I think it's just, it's the truth and trust in technology that we think that people are better at being a doctor than a machine. And we actually have the stats showing that a human doctor has a one out of seven chance of misdiagnosing you. Whereas, uh, you know, oh, AI doctor has a one out of 100,000 chance. And the funny thing is people say, I get the human, we're only, right, we're only human, but that's unacceptable for a machine. They think it should be perfect. And it's like, there's, there's no way, right? Machines will never be perfect, right? It's like saying like the failure rate of an airplane should be 0%. No, there's acceptable failure rate. It's a really small number, but there is one. Yep. But on the flip side, We've been able to do things like using like IOT, we can read like muscle tendon motion and allow a person to control a robotic arm, right? We know the brain can still send signals. So we don't have to be like Elon Musk and put chips in our brain and decode that. We can use an AI to decode muscle motion and allow you to control a robotic arm that way. There's, now we're destroying mobility. So on one hand, kind of stuck in neutral, on the other hand, some great advancement. And I guess that's all going to be dependent on the entrepreneur and how well they understand the systems being a first time or second time uh, founder, how much they've learned in that process of building a company to know where to get the data, where they're actually the problem they're trying to solve. And a lot of the time, uh, and I'm going to say this is probably uh, business, not business acumen, but it's the, it's the space that you live in that the problem that's gonna be solved more in the healthcare space is usually going to be a doctor or uh, somebody that's really heavily embedded in that. The problem is they're a doctor. So 
how often are they going to be out of a job and deciding, hey, you know what, I saw this problem when I was a doctor, I should solve it. So you're not getting enough of that information coming back to an entrepreneur. I, I saw this great article, um, or uh, it was LinkedIn post, and it was a lady that was in uh, healthcare for 20, 30 years. She was a doctor and she stepped out and decided to become an entrepreneur and build a successful healthcare practitioner practi uh, business. And when you looked at it, you would not have thought, how was that possible? But <laughs> she saw a bigger problem than what she could solve when she was just a doctor. So if you take all of these other areas in the world in business, a lot of the lacking innovation comes because the people that are working in the space are comfortable, happy, and don't need the change. And you're not getting in anybody that's young and that spent 10 years to become a lawyer, spent 10 years to become a, a practitioner to decide, you know what, I don't want that life. I want to be a tech entrepreneur. So it's these Watson systems have to collect that data, turn it into something of value because you're not seeing the problem unless you step out of the environment you're in. You're 100% right. I, I hate to say it that way. Look, how many technologists you know understand the day-to-day -day challenges of a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, or even an accountant, right? It, with AI, it's the marriage between the technology expertise and the domain expertise. The most successful AI companies honestly weren't started by uh, super smart technologists, right? They, they had some combination of the technology of the domain expert, or they had guys that actually were doctors. Or they yep. actually were lawyers. I mean, they, well, you brought them in, right? So they become advisors or they become part of the business. But at the end of the day, they're still that practitioner. They're still the doctor. They're still doing what they were trained to do, right? So not not always. Like I'll give you, an, I'll give you an illegal example, Jeffrey. That there are actually three lawyers that I met about four years ago. Now they're just like we were talking about something else, and they're like, "What's the deal with AI?" They're like all the stuff about AI. And so we started talking about it, like we should do something. And so we kind of talked through it during lunch. They came up with an idea and they formed a company called Legal Nation. So they built essentially an AI associate lawyer. And you know, they're not technologists, they, they hired really smart people to help them do that. But they thought this would be a little side thing. They wound up selling off their practice and devoting themselves full time to their startup because they just saw a better opportunity. They got great traction, you know, help them get Walmart and target all these big companies as clients. And so they're like, this, this is way more fun and it's way more lucrative, but they're like, I actually feel like I'm changing my industry. Right? So that's what they're like, I, you know, it's not just me trying to win a case now. It's like me trying to help a whole bunch of people with their legal needs. Yep. Oh, that's brilliant. And we need more of that too, right? But I think if that's, again, it's a shift, it's tougher, but I think that AI or the machine systems that are pulling in both sides of the information, human and data, combining it together, you're going to get way faster outcomes and more people shifting the way they work. So speaking of that, how does that shift the way the work world is actually um, embracing AI? Have you seen that this is scaring people or, you know, it's creating new jobs, new opportunities? Is there going to be that desolate, 10 years from now where there's nobody working and the computers are taking over everything and my next girlfriend is going to be a robot? Like, is that kind of the mentality we're going after? I can assure everybody that the machines are not taking over. We'll have plenty of work to do. The goal was never to replace people, but essentially offload some of the admin grunt work, supplement so that we can focus on the things we're good at, the creativity, the imagination, the first of a kind stuff. You really can't teach a machine. So 
Believe me, I, I, I get it. I would tell you that, you know, even as recent as probably about 2014, we were getting tons of death threats. People thought we were going to put all people out of work. But something happened about two, three years ago. There was kind of this inflection point where people, they're like, you know what, I can be the, the passenger and freak out about what people are doing, or I can be the driver. I can try and help shape things, whether it's for my company, my community, you know, somebody I work for even. And so now I don't hear the question so much about, will AI take my jobs? I get the question all the time, what should I be doing with AI? How do I figure that out? I like it. And you're right. That's really should be the question, right? How do I work with it, not against it? Yeah. And it's same thing. How do I get my data into Watson and work with the system instead of preventing it so that I can't grow and nobody else can understand how to grow in this space either? Well, this stuff's not going to disappear, right, Jeffrey? So, you know, it's like, again, like it's a tool. I always tell people think of it like AI, like a hammer. You could use it to create something or you could use it to destroy something. The choice is on us as people. Well said, I like that. Uh, so now you've, uh, you've kind of progressed into uh, AI for good. And uh, it's a great little term, I guess, or a huge term, because based on where you are, we just talking about how people are afraid of, AI and now you're like, no, 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 this is for good, man. So maybe tell us a little bit more about AI for good and, and how that's changing the way people are lining up to AI. I'm a big proponent about trying to leave the world at least as good as, if not better than I found it. And so when I was asked to speak in front of the UN five years ago, I was warned that like most of the world leaders think it's going to take over the world and eradicate humanity, you know, Terminator time. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I went up, I talked a little bit about what AI is, but I showcased a lot of examples where it was used being for public service and how it could be applied to some of the sustainable development goals. And my speech wound up being pretty well received. And that night at the reception, I was approached by the secretary general and a few other people. And like, Neil, you kind of opened our eyes up. We never actually thought about using AI for public service or for public good. Right, we just don't have something to be afraid of. They're like, there's a lot of momentum in the member nations. Can we figure out something to do? And so, you know, working with the the you know the Secretary General staff, we came up and said we can use AI to help bridge the gap on the sustainable development goals. We can help people that are homeless, that are hungry, you know, help protect life and fight climate change. And we decided to dub this AI for good because you know back then everyone was thinking Terminator time. And that really seemed to spark. We uh, ran off trying to create some awareness, put together a summit very quickly. It was very well received. But today we have over 116 active projects going on. We have a huge network and ecosystem of partners that volunteering time and resources, got people coming in with you know, project ideas, got solutions out there in healthcare, financial services, you know, upskilling people for jobs. I mean, it's been a real game changer. That's brilliant. I got I got introduced to AI for good probably around the same time that you were pushing it out because it did get some, uh, I guess, world attraction, which I thought was pretty amazing. And um, a couple of years later um, in Whitby, which is just Durham region outside of Toronto, uh, one of the guy, Isaac, one of um, a great, great entrepreneur, uh, he created a hackathon weekend AI for good. 
And uh, we've been supporting that, except for this year due to COVID, we couldn't run it, but four years in a row. And it was trying to find ways to use AI to help people. So they were doing medical, uh, healthcare, like different aspects of it. And it was just a weekend. People cram in there for 36 hours, build out a cool little application. But it's following off exactly what you're saying, right? It was, how do we do something with this AI that will um, better humanity and, and better the way we work with products? And some of the stuff that came out of it was pretty phenomenal and it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. So kudos for starting that. I think it's brilliant and it's helped a lot of people. Well, thank you. That, that was the goal. I'm glad your, your friend is doing that. And I encourage everyone, just there's one small thing everyone's willing to do, take a look and find it. Yep. No, you, you solved a big problem. Uh, which is really cool. So how do you find that now in the, the better part of the last five years since AI for Goods come out and, and 160 projects, which is phenomenal, um, how have you found that that has shifted the entrepreneur side of things? Do you find that entrepreneurs are really attacking this totally different than they were the previous five years, even when you were an entrepreneur? Have you seen that, that the whole landscape has changed and that it's uh, nobody's looking at service. No one's looking at anything. They're just like, AI, I got to find someone that knows AI. Or uh, how have you seen that? What does it look like to you? It, it's, it's actually changed the way we perceive data. Um, the, I think the un, unique thing here is we talk about the importance of diversity and inclusion of different perspectives. Now that we have essentially global participation. People are looking at things differently and sharing their perspectives. We've been able to figure out things out like looking at satellite images, we can now predict where poverty will occur. All right. And it's just the different mindset in that, okay, you think, okay, I'm looking at these pictures and stuff, but you get people from different parts of the world. You can look at parts in like Central Asia, parts of Africa, where they're like, well, you'll notice the, the places where people don't have money, like they don't have lights. Right. And they're like, you know, you can, that's it's a sign, like, okay, but that just tells us where probably the impoverished are like, but if you look, they're like, we were looking at the data and you can see places where lights get, get shinier, so to speak, and lights get dimmer. And, you know, we started crunching the numbers, you know, and the machines look at the patterns saying like, where the lights get dimmer is areas where people start becoming impoverished, right? It might be a political thing. It might be a war, it might be something else. You can actually see this trend over time. So that months in advance, you can start realizing, my God, this place is becoming a trouble spot economically. What can we do? And so it's that, I think, unique perspective everyone's bringing to the table. Even though we all kind of have the all same data, now we're actually really tapping into the value from it. We're really unlocking that thanks to these different mindsets. No, that's brilliant. There was, um, and, and again, we all read so much stuff. I don't, I couldn't tell you pinpoint where this data came from in my head, but uh, there was um, a great article or podcast or a book or something that basically said if we wanted to understand how a country was doing if we could access their energy grid we could tell you where that country was now and going to be in six months and the reason being is that the amount of power they're diverting to warehousing to manufacturing plants we could actually tell you when they're going to go into a recession and this would actually be better data better information than the produced gdp numbers that would be coming out and we'd actually be able to predict what was going to happen in the next five years amongst all countries. And uh, the one big thing that we can't have access to is that no one will share that data because of those reasons. That's the problem. Everyone, it's the new oil. Everyone wants to try and monetize. 
Yep. Right? We have a big initiative in the United Nations trying to create a data repository where people give data away, right? For, for this type of use, particularly healthcare data. Because we know that if we can aggregate that together, we can accelerate things around medicine. I mean, a lot of people ask me like with COVID, how come we're not tapping more into AI? And it's like, if we actually had more data, we could have solved some of these things faster. Yeah. Nobody wants to share, right? I, I get the rates for the vaccine, the monetization, but it's like, you probably could have cut all this stuff down and you combine AI with general design, you can actually predict the mutations of viruses. You can predict viruses we've never seen before because we know the genomic structure. We can actually start creating vaccines for viruses that don't exist yet. I mean, imagine being able to prevent epidemics, let alone pandemics, Jeffrey. It would be pretty amazing. And just to have a database sitting there and be like, okay, someone tried to release this one. Oh, that matches this, done, throw it in, done. This, yeah. That was so easy. Yeah, I, I agree that there's a lot of uh, areas that could be really explored if people were more open to sharing content, data and information. I get there's privacy, but I think at the end of the day, it's more of people trying to protect their domain. And a lot of that domain can actually benefit and help others. Like, I, I agree, but you think about it, unfortunately, everyone wants, everyone wants to be a data company now, right? Yep. Uh, like, like, Facebook is not really a social media company. They're a data company. Google, they're not like a search engine. They're a data company. And everyone knows there's probably some value. If I can't find it, so I'm not just going to give it away. And we wind up hurting ourselves in the long run because of that. For sure. And this kind of goes into my, my next question, which was now you have this carbon... Uh, footprint or carbon uh, offsets. So do you find that AI might be actually tricking the system in some instances for big business to be able to find loopholes in ways to offset their initiatives to be able to hit the 2025 um, changes that they need to make because they can offset their carbon footprint by buying over here, but using AI to find loopholes in these areas. So they're going to be able to offset all these carbon tokens and be able to win at the race. I'm just curious as to how you think that's all going to shift because right now we're in a serious part where the world's trying to adjust and fix the climate and to fix all these problems. And everybody's coming out saying, um, well, we're going to reduce all of our carbon by this year because we're going to offset it by buying over here. But are they really solving a problem or are they just creating a worse one? Uh, they're not. I mean, you got to be committed to an actual solution. I haven't heard of anyone using AI to try and find loopholes, but there's a lot of work I know going on in terms of arbitrage. They're looking for those opportunities. It's usually with the stock market, but the carbon offset market works very similarly. Yep. Well, so, that's what I meant by loopholes. Which yeah, was, <laughs> I, I think that... A better word of saying it, but it's still a loophole. <laughs> You, you no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure there's unfortunately some companies that are paying lip service to what they want to do and they're doing exactly that. But I actually think that problem will get solved ironically because of people. Because you look at especially like Generation Z, they're very passionate about social impact, making positive change. They don't want to work for a company that plays lip service to these things. I've actually seen it. They don't care so much about the salary or the position. They want to go somewhere where the, the values are the same and they feel like they make a difference. And so companies that continue to do that, they're not going to attract the top talent, right? They're not going to become the best, say the best companies anymore. So it's in everyone's interest for them to actually just try and do it right. And if you're going to invest all that time and money looking for loopholes with AI, 
why not then tap AI and help find those opportunities where you can actually reduce your own carbon emissions? Agreed. Well, it is only a discussion, so I won't say that I know any companies doing it, but in my mind, I think, hey, if people have got the tools, they're going to find loopholes and it's terrible. But I know the last one I read was on Amazon and how they were trying to find ways and they were coming out saying they were going to be 100% carbon neutral. You're like, how? You guys deliver all over the world, massive warehouses. Is that even possible? Well, we're going to offset over here. Well, that offset probably is going to cost you way more money, not you, but somebody else. So you're really fixing the problem. So, But I do agree on the one aspect is that uh, the younger generations coming in are looking to make sure that they're working for a business that actually is taking care of them. Yep. People are going to help solve this problem. Very good. So I know we're, we're going to, and I just love talking about all these cool things you're up to. So the, the other question that I had that was, uh, I guess, fits into this whole realm of angel and early stage, which is all the things we're kind of focusing on here, which was that you're a master inventor. Can you define what that means? Because I just thought that was the cool tag. I would just tell everybody that's it, and I would walk away. I'm like, master, <laughs> drop the mic. Well, there, there's only about 300 master inventors in IBM, and they're essentially people that have created very revolutionary or maybe evolutionary uh, technology. It's essentially something that has a global impact and was generating billions of dollars for the company. So because of my work in artificial intelligence and all that, I was actually named an IBM master inventor. Sick. Amazing. <laughs> That's like getting sir in front of the name <laughs> being knighted. Like that to me feels like the same thing. So it's a great, it's a great honor. I was very humbled. Yeah. It, yeah. That's amazing, man. I am actually not going to call you Neil anymore. I'm just going to call you master. Master, it's like Master Yoda. Master Sota. There, done. Just put the right term in, you're good. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, well, so I guess the, we're going to transition. We got to talk about startups. We got to get more into that space. So uh, now that you've kind of gone through this great journey in your, in your career, where is this put together the startup side of things. You said you worked as a consultant, you've been working with startups along the way. So where does this kind of put you now? What is your, what's your favorite thing to do and what have you been really focused on in the last couple of years and how does that work in the entrepreneurial space? Well, my, my role as an angel investor, as well as, you know, being part of five VC funds, either as an investor or advisor or both, it's kind of helped unleash some of the potential out there. Cause a lot of the early investing in emerging technology was more hype than reality. And, you know, like, like blockchain was a great example where people I'm doing blockchain and you hear them talk is like, I don't think you even know what blockchain means, <laughs> but there was so much money getting thrown at it. And then the problem becomes is, well, all these guys, all these VCs lost money. And so they get soured on the whole area that they don't actually produce, pursue real opportunities. So I've really been working to try and bridge that gap again and say, look, there's actually a lot of untapped potential out there you just need to understand how to find it, right? Don't fall for the buzzword. It's not rocket science. Again, it's, yeah, are they solving a problem or value proposition and unfilled needs? But is what they're talking about, is it actually feasible? That, as you were talking about earlier, starts a lot with data, starts with the team itself, and you have the subject matter experts. And I think you carry a lot of background in this. So 
just like most people say, that doesn't sound like AI. That sounds more like a matching data play, or that sounds more like, um, uh, what's the other one uh, uh, that's more common when it comes to AI uh, predictive modeling, when it's not really AI, it's not using the AI engine to the algorithm extent of what you're trying to do and building up enough data stream to start breaking that down. So I guess you can probably jump into a lot of that right away and understand it quickly and and even help maybe structure a company so that it would be using AI more properly in that instance. hundred percent. That's the thing a lot of people struggle with. They think it's a lot of if then statements and it's like, no, no one is not. You do not program an AI like that. There's actually very little programming. The AI figures stuff out on its own. You just give it some rules on how to make decisions called the ground truth. And you give it lots of data to learn from. Right? It's going to wire its own algorithms. That's the way real AI works. And it, it's, it's tough for people to get over that hump. But people that actually do that, that's how they're unlocking insights. There's a reason why AI can answer questions we don't know the answer to, because it's actually learning like we learn. But you have to start it somewhere. So I guess the good thing is, is that if they can look for uh, Master Suhota, they've got somewhere to go there. I think that's brilliant. 100%. And look, and if people are skeptical, there's a bunch of artists using AI right now, right? Totally non-techies, creating all new forms of music. If they can create that, if they can do that, then entrepreneurs, well, you can change the world. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. I like it. All right. Well, now we're going to jump into the rapid fire questions because I think we could talk for hours on AI and data <laughs> and structure of companies because I'm a big fan and uh, really enjoy uh, that conversation. But for the, uh, for the audience, we really got to tap into some of these uh, investor questions. So we'll do those quickly. And then we got a couple more uh, uh, questions for you, but all right, to start. So what's your favorite part of investing? Uh, it's seeing the ideas the entrepreneurs bring. So it's so good to see how they want to disrupt and change the game. I love it. Uh, how many start, how many companies do you invest in per year? About 10, about 10 a year. Okay. Brilliant. You're a rock star. I like it. <laughs> um, any verticals you like to focus on? No, no real verticals. It's just more about great idea, great team. I mean, I even, you know, listened to a pitch about sustainable, um, apple cider. So it's not so much the industry. It's, are you solving a problem and you have the right team to do it? Yeah. I like that. Apple cider is good. I do a shot every morning. <laughs> uh, do you have any due diligence requirements that you look for when you're diving into these companies? Yeah, a lot of the standard stuff around financials, market size, opportunity. But at the end of the day, one of the biggest things for me is really the strength of the management team. Are they capable? And if they have gaps, or is there a way to fill those gaps or not? And do you have a timeline on investments? Is it one week, three weeks, a month, two months? Depends on the size and complexity of the investment, right? If you're someone's talking like raising a hundred grand, you're not going to spend a month doing due diligence. It's probably a couple of hours of conversations and review to do something like that. If you're coming in saying we're looking for 10 million, then it's going to be a little bit more fine tooth comb process. That is true. Uh, outside of DD, and you mentioned a couple right right now, which is you're into the team. Is uh, is there any? things that you look for outside of the paperwork, outside of just putting money in, what's the thing you go for? Uh, aside from the team, if they have customers or potential customers, I love to talk to them and see why. 
they think about it because I've seen too many startups where they think they know the customer, but they never actually talk to them. So talking to the customer helps me understand, are you fulfilling an unmet need? I like it. Uh, do you lead rounds? Sometimes, depends on the round. Okay, any preferred terms? Pref shares, common, safes? No, it, it, again, it just depends on the opportunity. I mean, it's, it's flexibility is the most important thing. It depends what stage the startup's in. Okay. I heard you like Canadian companies. Is that true? Canadian companies are awesome. <laughs> Making sure the audience knows that. He likes all companies in the world, but he does like Canadian companies. Uh, do, uh, do you take board seats? Uh, sometimes I do. If I feel like I can actually contribute value, then absolutely. Otherwise, I'm happy to be an investor or sometimes just be an advisor. Okay. And on the investments you do make, do you do follow-ups? Uh, sometimes. So there's actually two funds I'm part of. That's actually our strategy. We keep betting on winners. So as companies keep making milestones and get more traction, we keep reinvesting every round. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Uh, what other ways do you help startups outside of financials? Lots. I mean, we try and plug in holes, the management team, at least temporarily, like if they don't have a finance guy, provide that. Tap into our networks for potential clients or street partners. Like you know, we had a toy company where we, we brought some of our manufacturer resources in to lower their production costs. So at the end of the day, philosophy is for me to be successful, I have to help you make you successful. That means revenue, that means strategic partnerships, it means cost management, the whole ball wax. Yeah, I like that line. You were bang on. If uh, you want to, if you want to succeed in the world, you got to find ways to make other people more money than you make. That's right. Uh, any, any uh, companies that you have in mind that you want to share that you uh, openly want to say this company's doing awesome, big fan. There's two. One I mentioned, Legalmation, which was the AI lawyer one. The fantastic traction quickly, especially with big companies. The other one I'll mention is Sierno AI. And so it was started by a therapist and a neurolinguist. And they've basically found a way for AI to decode language. So imagine that you're talking to someone and the AI will tell you like, this is their level of commitment to what they're talking about. This is the way, what they care about the most. Here's how you speak to them, even the words you use, right? For this person, you need to focus on the feature. This one, you need to focus on the value. This one, focus on the, the fun. But I look at it as like, you know, even with your significant other who, who I love the most in the world, we still have arguments. Imagine have that little AI coach. You're like, hey, Neil, don't be saying that to her, right? She doesn't, that's not going to resonate with you. That's not what she cares about. And don't use these words, use these words instead, right? Just improve the ability to, to speak to one another, speak to the other person's language. I think that's just huge. They just launched a Zoom plugin. So it's gotten really good traction on the downloads. Because we live virtually, we lose some of the physical cues. This has actually been a good bridge to help actually accelerate the building of strong relationships. So Cyrano AI, I see big things for them. What's it? How do you spell it? It's like Cyrano de Bergerac. So C-Y-R-A-N-O. I like it. All right, I'm going to look into that. It's interesting you say that because, uh, well, uh, about a week ago, I read this article and it was changing the way that uh, instead of apologizing for the way that something occurred, um, 
acknowledge that they accepted you for the issue. Instead of saying, hey, I'm sorry I'm late, say, I appreciate that uh, you were able to uh, be here a few minutes without me, uh, but I'm happy to start now. So I started actually trying to change my mindset around that. So every time I go to type or say something, I shift from saying, I apologize because, or I'm sorry, because I feel like one, why am I always doing that? If I'm the one always late or I'm always one, whatever the reason is. So I try my best to say, unless it's obviously right off the cuff, but how do I shift my dialogue to enhance it without using an excuse, but using something to enhance it. So it takes the guard down and gets that person more interested quickly by doing something funny or saying yeah. something interesting. And I can say that it actually works. I feel less bad about any of these circumstances I'm in because I'm not always coming out saying the same thing every time, right? There we go. Proof positive from Jeffrey. <laughs> Done. I like it. Um, all right, cool. So the next uh, question we have outside the rapid fire questions, you did great. Um, yeah, no complaints. Everybody's going to be happy with those. Uh, the one question that we do have is, in all the years you've been doing this, you've got to come across some sort of business that has – uh, just blowing your mind away from they were on the verge of bankruptcy or going to fail. And then they just did something COVID hit and they took off and life was grand or reverse anything like that. Any kind of heartstring stories that you got that you can share, because I always find those little tiny motivation stories are the best. Uh, tons of stories like that, but I'll definitely share a positive one where we saw this company come in and pitch and they came and said, like, we're like Snapchat. And they were talking about like these localized filters based on your geolocation information. And, you know, the guy had told us he had done this because of his 12 year old daughter. And, you know, there were some health issues with her, but, you know, she was really into taking pictures is why he got into it. Honestly, we passed on them, right? We're just like, because we, the QA session, like, you're going to come in against Snapchat and all these things, and you have patents and at least some things. I give credit to the CEO, right? Because he was like, I'm very serious about this. He came back after we declined him and said, look, can I just, I would love to talk to someone, understand what we're doing wrong and what do we need to do to be on the right track? Because I really want to make this company successful. And they'd ask, would someone provide any input? And I said, look, I'll do it. I was one of the most vocal people during the q and I'm happy to do that. And so I sat down with him and his management team and they cut this sort of just walk. I'm like, just walk me through what you guys are doing. Right. I told you, know, here's the feedback, walk me through what you're doing. So I understand. I spent two and a half hours with them. And I, after at the end, I'm like, you guys are not Snapchat. Right. You guys have actually found a better camera. Right. You're, you're what you're doing and what you're messaging are completely out of sync. And so I wound up helping them out over the course of the next three weeks to kind of reconfigure their value propositions and the whole messaging and then brought them back for a pitch session. We decided we would, we, you know, now people like, oh, now I get it. I see the value. And so we said we'd fund them and we brought two other funds to the table. So the guy actually wound up getting oversubscribed for his round. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And so then we, we took them to some of the telecoms we knew. And so he went from thinking like, this is kind of a pipe dream to now he's, you know, he's getting unsolicited acquisition offers. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, nice work. Yeah. These are the good stories. Positive pushes. I like that. Yep. Okay. So now we're going to move to the more personal side. 
And because we skipped over on the first question, we're going to get it again. But there's a few personal questions just to top this off because I've learned through other podcasts and other things I've done that in order to connect with someone, you got to learn a few little positive things about them that nobody would know. So you still have to answer the one question that nobody would know. And then I'll jump into the next two, three questions. One thing that nobody would know, um, you know, I, I, I never talk about it, but I can actually make pizza from scratch. Like I make my own dough. I, I literally take the, the flour. I make my own dough. I have a special technique. It has to sit overnight. You know, get my, my fresh cheese or sometimes I'll try to make the cheese myself. But uh, I, I really love pizza. I don't get a chance to cook very often. But uh, not many people know that I can actually make pizza entirely from scratch. Brilliant. Well, now that I know that, next time <laughs> in California, I hope I get a pizza. Well, so, we'll make you some, Jeffrey. Yes. <laughs> All right, man. I like it. That's brilliant. Okay, second personal question. What's your favorite sports team? Uh, the Yankees, man. I grew up just a few blocks away from Yankee Stadium as a kid. Oh, that's awesome. I was a Yankee fan at one point, but... I decided that I couldn't get to a game living in Toronto so much. So I decided that this wasn't really working out for me. I couldn't be a distant fan. So I became a Blue Jays fan and uh, New York is our rival. So we don't like you. So we go <laughs> against the Yankees. We'll always get crush you guys. Actually, we don't. It's about a 50-50 split, but Yankees are a pretty good team. You know, they're predicting the Blue Jays to win the division next year. Oh, yeah? Yeah, seriously. I like it. <laughs> we have some pretty big uh, sluggers on the team. I think we've got a young team that can really pull it through. It's going to take about a year or two, maybe three, before they really uh, peak out. But from our old, old team to really, you know, getting a lot younger, it's made us a lot stronger. So I think a good pitcher and probably a veteran infielder or maybe outfielder, and I think you guys are pretty much there. Agreed. Yeah. Yankees will always have a good team because they always have the paid – pay background to make sure that they can buy who they need to to run the team but in the last i'd say the last five six years they've really become more of a dynamic team they're not just paying players to come they're actually putting players in that fit the role to work as a team and i think that's what's made the yankees even better of a, of a business well they're tapping into the data they're using sabermetrics to do degree even for team chemistry so yeah. i gotta give my i gotta tip my hat to cashman he's done a fantastic job Agreed. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Sometimes I waver when I'm watching both play and I'm like, wait, I used to be a fan. Oh, I can't. Blue Jays. Are um, second question. What is your favorite movie and what character would you be in that movie? My favorite movie is actually Yojimbo. It's a Japanese movie by Akira Kurosawa. Okay. And I would definitely be the nameless samurai because I always feel like I, you know everyone's got their you know, kind of warring nature and trying to get their stuff. And, you know, I'm always seem to try and kind of bridge the gap, not just play peacemaker, but say, hey, let's find the consensus. Let's expand the pie kind of thing, you know? I like it. And it's called Jimbo? Yo Jimbo. Yo Jimbo. I'm looking yeah. this up. Let's see if I can watch that. A big fan of um, a lot of uh, TIFF. We go to TIFF every year, watch a lot of the stuff. So I've seen a ton of uh, Japanese film makers so big fan so i'm gonna look this right. one yeah that's why the reason why i'm asking the film question it's also so i can find <laughs> new films <laughs> and i've had some good some good films too 
some shockers too. I was like, really? That's your favorite film? But you know what? Everybody's going to have their own. So that's good. I'm going to look that one up and I'm going to look up the uh, Nameless Samurai. That's very cool. Awesome. Well, Neil, or Master Sohota, I'm, uh, I had a really good time chatting with you today. Uh, honestly, I think that uh, you're doing a lot of great things. Um, AI for Good has been a, a huge initiative. Uh, always exciting to hear that you're chatting with the uh, UN and getting people more aligned to uh, your initiatives and the things that you guys are trying to solve. Um, we're big fans, so I'm glad that you had the time today to chat. And the way we like to kind of end things off is that we like to give you the last word uh, anything you want to say to an investor or to entrepreneurs, um, the platform is yours and uh, yeah, please share away. I will tell everyone the best advice I can give you is always trying to be Uber yourself before you get Kodak. Meaning, always try and disrupt yourself before someone disrupts you because someone will try and do that one day. So you might as well be the one. I like that. I'm going to write that one down too. Well, you're a good man. Thank you very much. As I always do, took lots of notes. I'm going to love to have you back in, uh, in some time, but I appreciate all the insights you provided. Uh, brilliant. And keep up the great work. That sounds awesome, Jeffrey. I had a blast. Would love to come back anytime. Awesome. Thank you very much for all that. Well, that was brilliant. Uh, fantastic. Neil Sohota, or as we were referring to, uh, Master Sohota and Man, amazing. Only 300 people are designated with this master inventor. So that's pretty sick. And I think overall, uh, Neil brought a lot of great things to share about AI and how the structure works. And of course, uh, their whole side of things on how they make investments. Uh, really cool. 160 projects on the go right now, working with the UN and everything. That uh, AI for good. That's amazing. Absolutely awesome. Either way, he did a great job. It was a, a great chat. And thank you everybody for joining us and have a fabulous week.